John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went away again into their own homes in John's gospel the empty tomb shocks and surprises and even disturbs the followers of Jesus John is no fool. He was raised in a world where the dead do not literally and physically come back to life. 400 years before the birth of Jesus, Socrates, the famed Greek philosopher, took a cup of wine that was liberally laced with hemlock and he lay down to die. And his friends asked him, Shall we live again? The dying philosopher could only reply, I hope so. But no man knows. But the gospel's bold message is that we can know. Like so many in the modern world, our reaction to the gospel message is at first a challenge, just as it was in the first century, to the emotions as it was to Mary Magdalene in verses 1 and 2, and later in the chapter in verses 11 through 18. But it's also a challenge to the intellect, as it was to Peter and John. In verses 3 through 9 and later in the chapter, the resurrection will serve as a challenge to the stubborn will of Thomas. In verses 24 through 29, a challenge to the heart, a challenge to the mind, a challenge to the will. It all sounds so very ancient and modern. The resurrection has the ability to stir the heart and satisfy the mind and then stab the conscience like it did with Thomas. No wonder the resurrection will from this moment forward in the gospel text serve as the focus of the apostles preaching. Jesus has come back to life. The resurrection is both an event in history 
but it's also an experience in reality. The resurrection really happened. It's the world's best authenticated story, according to Roy Lauren. And so again in verse 1, a mixed message from Mary Magdalene. Look what it says now. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. In the first day of the week in our calendar, it's usually Monday. But in the Jewish calendar, they would say day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. And then day 6 was the Sabbath. This is the first day of the week. In John's gospel, Mary Magdalene is the first to witness the empty tomb. It's the first day of the week. She comes to the tomb early while it's still dark. And she saw the stone had been taken from the tomb. She's driven by love, by the way, and gratitude towards a man who literally saved her life. In other words, she, along with others, are going to make their way to the tomb. She is not driven by the hope that Jesus has come back to life. She is driven by the fact that this particular person literally saved her life. He was the most important person in her life. He was the most important person in her world. And her grief was real. And the text reminds us and we're led to believe that she comes driven by grief and by love. But by the way, does the text lead us to believe that in that grief-stricken state, she conjures up a fictional resurrected rabbi? I don't think so. The text tells us first what she discovered And then what she did based on that discovery, all the gospel accounts are united in the fact that the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. Matthew 28, 1. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. The passage that we've all read. All of the gospels agree without exception that Jesus' tomb was empty on Sunday morning. In brief, the order of events on that first resurrection Sunday was the women make their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, even though they're somewhat unsure of its location. If you look at Mark chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. There were the three. Mary Magdalene. Mary the mother of James. And Salome. Followed by the women who had accompanied Jesus from the Galilee. In Luke chapter 23. Verses 55. That goes all the way to chapter 24. Verse 1. 
The three women discover the stone covering the tomb has been removed by an angel, Matthew 28, 2. Mary Magdalene hurries to Peter and John who ran towards the tomb in our text in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. Meanwhile, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, and the other women arrive at the tomb, enter it, see the angels, and the angel assures them that Jesus is risen from the dead. They run from the tomb in fear and joy. They inform the disciples according to Matthew 28, 8. Peter and John arrive at the tomb. They observe and leave according to John chapter 20, verses 4 through 10, which we just read. Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb weeping and Jesus appears to her in chapter 20 verses 11 through 18 and the other women are on their way to tell the disciples Jesus appears to them in Mark 28 verses 9 through 10 so that's a quick summary but let's go back to Mary I've often thought that if I could go back to one place and one time in all of human history it would be this time Imagine you could set the Wayback Machine and follow Peter and John into the tomb. It's dark before the sun has come up. She sees that the stone has been removed. She's in a graveyard in the dark. Is she afraid of her surroundings or the guards? Do you remember when you were a kid? Did you ever do something creepy? The journey begins in the dark, but it's going to end in the light. Dr. Jeremiah Johnson in his book Unanswered has a chapter in his book that I just recently read entitled The Dead Rise, a PhD in zombies. It's interesting. He speaks of our culture's fascination with the undead. For some reason, this younger generation loves zombies. They love the undead. And he asks this question. By the way, he, he even says that the University of Arizona offers a PhD in zombie studies. He goes on and he asks the question, why do we celebrate Easter rather than Halloween? as a cardinal Christian day of celebration. He writes, after all, belief in ghosts was widespread among Romans and even Jews in the first century, unquote. He goes on and he says that if the early Christians wanted to make up a story and fabricate a story or invent a story that the culture might be open to, they probably would have told a ghost story. They wouldn't have told this resurrection story because to the Greeks and the Romans, the idea of a resurrection was preposterous. It still is in the broader culture. My friend Hugh Hewitt, not long ago, interviewed the celebrated Oxford atheist scholar Richard Dawkins, whose birthday, by the way, was yesterday, March 26, 1941. In moments, Dawkins asked Hugh Hewitt, do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And Hugh Hewitt said, yes. And Dawkins' surprised response was, oh, 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 now I see what sort of fellow I'm dealing with. 
By the way, Hugh has a bachelor's degree from Harvard and a Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Michigan Law School. Your skeptical friends, your atheist friends, your agnostic friends, your unbelieving friends may have asked you a simple question. How could someone as smart as you believe something as stupid as this? I don't know what you said to them. But I'm hoping before the end of this service, you'll have things that you'll be able to say to them. To the stubborn skeptic, all miracles are absurd. But the resurrection is the one miracle. It's that one miracle. It's the one miracle that pushes almost every other miracle into irrelevance. This morning, millions of people will revisit the questions that have come to haunt humanity. Is Jesus a real person? Is there any evidence that he rose from the dead? Can we trust the witnesses? Could there be some other explanation? Skeptics have developed several objections to the resurrection. They offer alternative theories of what they perceive actually happened to the body of Jesus. But look what she says in verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Clearly Mary at this point doesn't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Her first response isn't, I'm going to fabricate a resurrection story and make everybody believe it in order to have a satisfying answer to the problem of the empty tomb. She believes that the tomb is empty. The Roman soldiers posted a guard and they're gone. Her first emotion is astonishment. Her second emotion is apprehension. She apparently is aware where John and is staying in Jerusalem and Peter and John seem to have reunited after the Lord's crucifixion. By the time she gets to the place where Peter and John are staying, she's already made up her mind that someone's taken the body. Maybe the Roman soldiers took it acting on orders of Pilate or the religious leaders. Maybe they decided to stash the body somewhere else for reasons unknown. Or maybe it was to squash the preposterous notion that Jesus would have risen from the dead. Or it could be that they took the body and they dumped it on a trash heap in the valley of Gehenna. But if it were true that they took the body, then when this pernicious superstition began to arise, all they would have to do is produce the body. Almost from the time I can remember, the, some of the first words out of my father's mouth that I remember hearing over and over in my childhood, no body, no crime. My dad once asked me, hey, if the body's found in Jefferson County and the head's found in Arapahoe County, who has jurisdiction? I go, dad, why are you asking me that? Oh, never mind. I just was wondering. Did the weak and terrified disciples suddenly 
experience a burst of courage? Did they confront and overpower a well-trained squadron of Roman soldiers, steal the body, concoct the story? Matthew reports that the guards ordered to secure the tomb told the religious leaders that a supernatural being removed the stone. The Jewish leaders paid to say that they fell asleep and the disciples snuck in, moved the stone, removed the body, Matthew 28 verses 11 through 15. Another persistent objection is that the followers of Jesus, well, they made up the whole story. They concocted a story and invented a plan to deceive the entire world into believing that Jesus is this proposed Messiah, the fulfillment of scripture, the son of God who rose from the dead. But does the evidence support that objection? The New Testament describes a group of disciples who fled for their lives Yet after they see and talk and touch Jesus, their lives are transformed. They leave their jobs. They endure hunger and persecution, abandonment and imprisonment, suffering and torture. For a lie? All the disciples approach the empty tomb with doubt. My friend Lee Strobel writes, quote, people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they are true, but people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know that their beliefs are false, unquote. The women at the tomb are afraid. They think someone's stolen the body. Once Jesus appears, they worship Jesus. They share the news with the disciples in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. And to make things more complicated... The disciples, without exception, except the exception of John, they don't believe the report of the women. They don't believe the empty tomb. They don't believe the angelic declaration. Thomas rejects those things on that morning, just like some of you just like some of your family and friends. They're there. And he doesn't believe it. He walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and witnessed the miracles. And he doesn't believe the testimony of the tomb. And he doesn't believe the testimony of the women. And he doesn't believe the testimony of the people that he's been walking with with the previous three years. It's only until Jesus actually appears to him that Thomas believes. James, the brother of Jesus, was embarrassed when his brother preached in Nazareth in Matthew 13, 55 and 56. Many have doubted the resurrection. It's only until Jesus shows up in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 that James believes. James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And according to Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century in an undisputed passage is stoned to death because of his belief in Jesus. And so we see a meaningful mission for Peter and John. In verses 3 through 9, in verse 3 we learn who they are. In verse 3 at the end we learn what they do. We learn what they see in verses 4 through 9. Who are they? Peter and John. What do they do? They visit the tomb. What do they see? That's the experience that's recorded in verses 4 through 9. 
In verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple. The other disciple, of course, is John, who's the author of this gospel. He is the person who penned this narrative. He simply refers to himself as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. That's the way I want my grandchildren to refer to me. I am the grandchild that my papa loves. So what do they do? They visit the empty tomb. An assertion has been made and now they're going to determine whether the assertion is true. And in verse 4, we see what they see. So they ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. What follows is the reactions of Peter and John as they make their appearance at the tomb. And, and John remembers all those years later that Peter is huffing and puffing as he's making his way to the tomb. And John, being much younger and stronger, gets there first. Hey, guess what? Sometimes we get older. Somebody texted me yesterday and said, you're not old. I go... You know, if I was a tree or a trilobite, I guess I could say I wasn't old. <laughs> the truth is, sometimes, you know, when you, know, you know when you're getting old? It's when you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your parents. <laughs> in verse 5, it says, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. This is John's testimony of what he did on Resurrection Sunday morning. He is at the empty tomb. He peeks into that tomb. He sees the linen clothes lying there. He doesn't go in. Now, again, John looks at the scene. He sees the clothes. What linen clothes? Those are the carefully wrapped linen clothes and the spices that were meant to mask the odor of death and postpone decay. The words looking and saw are important because it isn't a brief glance. It isn't a tearful glance. It seems to be scrutiny. John must have thought Mary Magdalene is right. The body's not here. But as yet he still doesn't grasp the fact that Jesus is risen. What, what did he possibly ask himself? Why would the authorities unwrap the body? Why take the body, grave clothes? Why take the, the grave clothes off of the body and the spices off the body? And how do you do it, leaving this cocoon? And John is contemplating at that very moment. And then Peter shows up. It says in verse 6, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. I want to point something out to you. John gets there first, but Peter goes in there first. The reason why I think that that's important is because you might live in a world where somebody beats you to the tomb but not necessarily to believe. Peter knows the body's gone. In verse 7, it says, the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. 
The tomb is empty. There's no evidence of vandalism. There's no evidence that the body was stolen in haste. They're the grave clothes, like a cocoon. It seems that the body just simply vanished. The handkerchief or the napkin that was around the head is neatly folded in a place all by itself. Who would go to that trouble? Who would go to the trouble to remove the body from the clothes, stage the clothes, and then fold the napkin? And in verse 8 it says, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw. And believed. That's interesting. The word believe seems to mean more than simply believing that he's looking at an empty tomb. Or believes that he's looking at grave clothes. Before him are the evidences of the resurrection. And I want you to think for a moment what evidence will do. Evidence can show us what happened. But evidence doesn't always cause people to believe what happened. Last night with my children, I was watching, of all things, a Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn movie from 1938. In 1938, my mother wasn't even born. She was born in 1939 when Gone with the Wind and um, Wizard of Oz. Cary Grant was, to my grandmother's generation, Perhaps one of the most handsome men in the whole world. There was nobody who was more popular than Cary Grant, except with the possible exception of Humphrey Bogart. But Cary Grant, just read before your time. Before most of your time, he tells the story of walking down the street and a, and a fellow locked eyes with him and he looked at him really hard and he says, wait a minute, I, I know who you are. You're... Don't tell me. I know who you are. You're Rock Hud. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's not it. And so Cary Grant goes, Cary Grant? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, I, I have somebody else in mind. And Cary Grant kept going, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. And he goes, no, 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 you don't even look like him. John would, at the beginning of his gospel, write in John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, and even though the world was made by him, he didn't recognize him. And even when Jesus is identified as the risen Savior of the world, the world's response isn't always welcome recognition. Sometimes it's willful unbelief. In verse 9 it says, For as they did not know the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. John pauses for a moment and tells us about the inescapable truth that the disciples at that point didn't believe the word from Jesus that he would rise from the dead. They didn't believe the empty tomb. They didn't believe the testimony of the women. They didn't believe the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So you might be thinking, where does the Bible say that? To what scripture is John making reference to? It's found in Psalm 16, verse 10, where David 
writes, quote, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, read decay. David takes a leap into the unknown and by revelation speaks of an event. David reveals two truths that will come to full fruition in his future famous son. The truth about the resurrection. You won't leave my soul in Sheol the grave. David could say, my flesh shall rest in hope. Because David could anticipate a time when he would come back to life. Was David a great saint? In many ways, yes. In other ways, he resembled presidential candidates. <laughs> David isn't the holy one mentioned in that psalm. David, great saint that he was, giant killer that he was, isn't the person who came back to life. Jesus is the one who comes back to life. And so John reminds the reader that the previous prediction of Jesus had remained not just difficult to understand, but almost impossible to understand. But now the puzzle pieces were falling into place. Arrest, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, tomb, empty, body, gone. Later, by the way, Peter would preach this exact text, Psalm 16, 10, that prophesied the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 28, after Jesus ascends into heaven, then the people gather and he preaches the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah. John would have went home and told Mary, the mother of Jesus, that Jesus was alive. How do we know that? John 19, 27, where we discover that when Mary is at the cross and John is at the cross, Mary follows John home. How can you not tell a mother something this important? Radical skeptic Bart Ehrman has released yet another pitiful book. Seeking to shake and hopefully destroy historical Christianity. In his latest book, Jesus Before the Gospels, Ehrman attempts and fails to show that recent scientific studies on memory prove that the gospel accounts are at best distortions, read lies. The events surrounding the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus were misremembered according to Bart Ehrman. But is that true? Did the eyewitness accounts of the ministry, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus offered by independent sources simply just get it wrong? Most of you are too young to remember the day that John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas. You might have seen clips of it on TV. Most of you are old enough to remember seeing the images of Ground Zero when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Can you imagine 30 years from now someone telling you it never happened? Kennedy was never killed. The towers never came down. There are certain things that you never forget. There are certain things that just simply don't pass away. All four Gospels declare the 
first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. And by the way, if you were going to fabricate a story in the ancient world, a woman's testimony was considered worthless. So if you're going to fabricate a story about the first witnesses, you would fabricate someone credible. You would fabricate someone influential. The reason why the Gospels record what the Gospels record is because it's true. And then we find a mystification. Look, it says, then the disciples went away to their own homes. What's their reaction? They go to their own homes. Why not stay? Maybe they thought it best to leave and tell the others. Maybe they thought, show's over. Nothing here to see. Time to move on. But Mary stays. Mary Magdalene lingers. She remains at the tomb. And she bursts into tears. One Bible writer says hers was the legitimate sorrow of separation and disappointment, unquote. For Mary, she's going to experience an unforgettable encounter with angels and the risen Lord. Both Lee Strobel and Gary Habermas, who Dr. Gary Habermas undoubtedly is the most well-trained individual in the world on the subject of the resurrection, have both spoken at our church. Lee Strobel and Gary Habermas were having a conversation and Lee once asked him about the subject of the resurrection to describe the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And from memory, Gary Habermas went down the list. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, John 20, verses 10 through 18. To the other women, Matthew 28, 10. To Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13. To 11 disciples more in Luke 24, 33. To 10 disciples and others with Thomas absent. And then to Thomas and the other apostles, to seven disciples, to seven apostles, to the disciples in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And then he was with the apostles on the Mount of Olives before his ascension in Luke 24, 50. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This isn't the fevered fabrication or imagination of one person who desperately wants it to be true. Or two people or three people. This isn't some shadowy figure, mystical apparition, fevered dream. Could the appearances be the product of fabrication? Legend. According to Dr. Gary Habermas, the time frame between the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that takes place and when Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is less than 30 years. Enjoy your youth. But there are people in this room who can remember what happened 30 years ago. And if you pretend like it didn't happen, they would be there to correct you. The debate rages. How do we explain this empty tomb? Did Jesus really die? Did he swoon on the cross, come close to dying but not really die? Did the cool, damp tomb suddenly shock his weakened body back into life? The evidence in the New Testament 
Jesus receives repeated blows to the head, bruising, swelling, damage to his face. He's tied to a marble pillar. He's beaten with a flagellum. This is a heavy leather whip with glass and lead, iron balls or bone fragments to make penetration and laceration as effective as possible. His skin and muscle would have been shredded. The beating was designed to bring the victim as close to death as possible. And the result would have been shock and blood loss a heavy robe is placed upon these open wounds and a crown of thorns is pressed on his skull Jesus carries a beam that weighs close to a hundred pounds on his shoulders experiencing exhaustion and dehydration and eventual collapse in John 19 17 Couple that with five to six inch nails being placed in your wrists and placed in your feet. And then hanging, breathing becomes difficult, almost impossible, shock and suffocation. And the final trauma that kills Jesus, according to Matthew 27, 50, is almost certainly heart failure. But now add that a pilum which is a spear wound, which is a leaf-shaped spearhead that was sometimes as much as 11 inches long. And he places the spear under his ribcage and penetrates the pericardial sac. That's the sac enclosing the heart. And then the heart itself where blood and water flow in John 1934. The evidence is he's really dead. And what evidence does the Bible offer to support this incredible claim? There's medical evidence. There's the evidence of the missing body. There's the evidence of multiple appearances. You should be able to talk. You should be able to say to the next person who asks you, why do you believe that this is true? You can cite the medical evidence. You can cite the appearances. You can cite the empty tomb. But perhaps the most compelling evidence of all is that he's changed you. One day someone might even ask you the question that was asked Socrates. Shall we live again? There was a legend that Socrates would have been familiar with, the Sphinx of Thebes, where the body of a lion and the upper torso of a woman lay crouched at the top of a rock and Greek children were learned this story from a very early age on the highway there was a proposed riddle to those who would journey past the sphinx those who failed to solve the riddle were slain by the sphinx and no one was able to answer the riddle until Oedipus came along he was asked the question what creature walks in the morning on all fours with two and then an evening with three, Oedipus replied, man, in childhood he crawls on all fours, hands and feet. In manhood he walks upright. In old age he has the help of a staff. And the sphinx was mortified that the riddle was finally solved and threw herself from the rock and perished. Why do I even tell you this story? Because Jesus solves the riddle of death. What 
happens when you die. And if you die, will you live again? What will you say? Will you point to the medical evidence? Will you point to the missing body? Will you point to the evidence of the post-resurrection appearances? Can you offer your life as testimony that Jesus saves people, forgives people, heals people? John Stott wrote, Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all. You know, it makes perfect sense to me that the people in the world can't cite the medical evidence. They can't cite the empty tomb. They can't cite the post-resurrection appearances. But you know. You know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather, we celebrate, we sing. And Lord, for those who know you and love you and trust you, on Monday morning, we're still going to love you and trust you. On Tuesday, we're going to walk with you and on Wednesday, speak with you. On Thursday, serve you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't allow this to become an empty tradition or a hollow celebration, but that, Lord, we, with our hearts, would honor you. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your love. We thank you for grace. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that a risen Savior can change our life forever in Jesus name amen